in the 16th chapter of Matthew, 1613. <coughs> Excuse me. 1613. When Jesus came in to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say, that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Verse 18 again, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Father, we come before you right now. We ask your blessings to be upon the reading of your holy word. God, we ask that you inspire us to teach it and to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> All right, we finished the book of Job last Wednesday. Tonight we are going to begin a series on the church on the doctrine of the church. In theology, that is ecclesiology. Ecclesiology. At least for right now, I feel like it's one of the most important things that I can teach you. is the doctrine of the church. We know a lot about God. We know a lot about different things in the Bible, but we don't know much about the church. And we are the church. And uh, there are different reasons why the doctrine of the church is not taught. And we're going to go through some of those tonight and help you understand. But I promise you, you are going to learn a lot about the church. Now the church, Jesus died for the church. Amen? Praise the Lord. And I think that uh, sometimes because we don't understand the church and how it's supposed to operate, that we have all kinds of preconceived ideas about what the church is supposed to be like. You know, and I think one of those preconceived ideas that the church just kind of runs, you know, rampant and just whatever, you know, anybody wants to do. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like that kind of a thing. You know what I'm saying? And that's the way most churches are run. But we have to be according to the word of the Lord. We have to designate, number one, what the church is, how it functions, what's its government, so on and so forth. So I'm going to be teaching you about the doctrine of the church. And I promise you, it is going to open your eyes. Because, because I'll be honest with you, for the most part, I think most people in the church are blind about what the church is supposed to be like and how it's supposed to operate. Amen? And uh, so, praise the Lord. Uh, we're going to learn a lot about the church. Now, why isn't the church, the doctrine of the church, taught in the church? Very rarely you're going to hear anybody teach on the doctrine of the church. Maybe sometimes. 
But why is it avoided? Why isn't there more teaching about the church? Why don't we know more about the church? If that's the very thing Jesus came to die for, then why isn't there much emphasis placed on teaching the people that are in the church about the church? Well, the first reason is, is there are different denominations. Okay? So, <clears throat> the reason why people don't focus on teaching the church because you have so many different denominations and each one of those denominations explain the church a little bit different. Okay? So if I stand up here and I explain to you the church or the doctrine of the church, well, you might say, well, that's our viewpoint. You know, that's the way we explain the church or the way we see the church. But the church down the street may, may see it a totally different way. And they may explain the church in a to totally different way from what we do. So as a result of that, then what happens? Because we've got all these different denominations and different views on the church and, and the doctrines of the church and how the church is to function. Because of that, if you start focusing on teaching about the church because there's so many different views about the church, then in people's mind that creates division. Okay, so, you know, and the church wants to come across and wants to appear as we're unified, you know, we're one. Even though there may be many, many denominations, the church still wants to say we're one. So when somebody begins to teach or focus on the doctrine of the church then, it sort of, it divides. Amen. So that's why a lot of times the teaching on the church is not given to the church because of that possibility of dividing the church, so to speak. We'll get into that as we go along here. The next reason is pragmatism. This is another reason why the doctrine of the church is not taught. Pragmatism. Let me explain what that means. We are a pragmatic people. Okay? So if something is not working, we have a tendency to be practical or pragmatic, and we change it. For example... If we're doing a certain, uh, the church a certain way and it's not working, we have a tendency to want to change the way we're doing church. Okay? And so what happens is the church finds itself in fitting in to try to fit in fads. And so whatever the new wave is, you know, well, the church is going to try to adapt to the new wave or the new fad that's coming along. And a church may completely change what it does and the way it does it just because it's trying to, to make it work. Okay? Or trying to fit in the fad or the new waves that are coming and that are going. Now, this church, is we don't do that. I mean, we, we try to adjust here. We, you know, if we can make things work better, we will. But we're not going to change the whole face of the church everything that we're doing because it doesn't fit into the current fad or the wave that's coming. And so that's why a lot of times that doctrine called the church is not taught is because it's constantly changing in the church based on the wave or the new fad that's coming along. The third reason why it's not taught is that in America especially, the church is looked at as a consumer thing. People approach the church with a consumer mentality. Does that make sense? It's it, You know what I'm talking about. They sort of have the mentality, we shop for a church. 
And <coughs> that consumer mentality then, people shopping for a church, they have very little interest about the doctrine that that particular church has. They really don't care. If it's got a good music ministry, they'll join the church. If it's got a good youth ministry in some cases, they'll join that church. If it's got a good Sunday school department, for some reason, they'll, you know, for that reason, they'll join the church. So a lot of people will come into a church, they could care less about the doctrine of the church or the discipline of the church, but just because it meets a particular need in their life at that moment, they will join the church. So it's sort of like shopping for the best deal, you know. Whatever fits their need at the particular time, that's the church they're going to go to, okay? So if you stay away from teaching uh, what the church is supposed to be, how it's supposed to function, what the doctrines of the church are, then you can have that mentality because you really don't care about those things. It's just how does the church meet my need right now? Does that make sense? If it does, say praise the Lord. <coughs> now, a lot of times when people get into that mode of shopping for church, let's say their kids are real small. So they'll go to a church and they'll, they'll shop for a church that has a good Sunday school department. And then when those kids grow up and become youth, well, they'll change churches. And they'll go to a church that's got a good youth program. Okay? And so on and so forth. So whatever the need is, these people are like that. They just, they're just shopping for whatever fits their need. Next reason why the doctrine of the church is not taught is because of parachurches. Everybody understand what a parachurch is? The word para means to be, be beside. So there's so many parachurches. That means organizations, institutions, whatever that are alongside of or beside the church that claim to be helping the church along. Now a parachurch is not a church. A parachurch is something that's beside the church that claims to be promoting the cause of Christ. Okay? For example, colleges. Bible colleges, seminaries, uh, maybe Christian counselors, you know, so on and so forth. Those aren't churches. They're parachurch organizations or organizations that are beside para, the church, to try to help the church along. The problem with parachurch is it's not a church. Okay? But if you're part of a particular group of people that are parachurch, which means they're trying to help promote the cause of Christ, but they're not a church, then that hinders the doctrine or the church, or the doctrine of the church being taught, you know? Because basically what's happening is the parachurch becomes a substitute for the true church of Jesus Christ. So therefore the teaching on the church is completely avoided altogether. Because we've got a substitute for the church now. Some institution, some system, some whatever, that is beside the church, maybe helping promote the cause of the church, but it doesn't focus on doctrine of what the church is really about. Does that make sense? So those are four reasons why uh, people don't teach on the doctrine of the church, okay? Now, sort of adjoining with that parachurch thing is a word called progressives. You have progressives in this hour, and let me explain what that is. 
they go from church to church to church. Sort of like, as I taught you before, that consumer mentality, the third one. But they're, they're progressive in their thinking. So they go from one church to another church to another church, depending on what the need of a particular time is. Okay, you with me? They're constantly switching churches. So they're progressive. Now, if somebody is constantly changing churches all the time based on what their particular need is at that time, they're, they're what is known as progressive. Okay? And they become serial church members. You know? Like you have serial, serial, you ever heard the term serial? Serial killers? That means they have, they've killed more than one person? Okay. That is a term. And, and so what we have when you've got a, a person that's progressive, they're not focusing on the doctrine of the church, the discipline of the church or anything. It's just whatever's meeting their need at a particular time. And they'll switch churches and switch churches and switch churches and, and they just become serial members in the church. Therefore, if that person has that kind of mentality, they're never committed to a church. They never get committed to a church. Because it's always changing. And so you have people that are like that. They're progressive in their thinking. They're serial church members. They just switch churches and switch churches and switch churches all their life depending on what their needs are. Therefore, they're just not committed. Okay? So if I teach you on the doctrine of the church, then that's going to help you not fall into all into these traps that we just went through. Let me list them for you again. Number one, different denominations. And to teach on the doctrine of the church has a tendency to divide the church. You with me? Number two, pragmatism. We want to do things and we want to do it in a way that it works. So we're willing to change what we do as a church to fit into the newest fad or the new wave that's coming along. Alright? Now if I stand up and I teach you from the Word of the Lord how the church is supposed to function, what its government is supposed to be, what its doctrine is supposed to be, then that's going to take away that pragmatic ideal where we're just going to adjust with every fad and every wave that comes along. Amen? The Bible is very clear that we're not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Okay? What's the third one? The shop for church mentality or the consumer mentality. Okay, praise the Lord. I'm just going to shop for a church. I don't really care what their doctrines are, their disciplines are, but I'm going to shop for the church that fits my need for right now. Parachurch. Institutions that are alongside the church really do, in, a, in some ways, hinder the church from being what it's supposed to be because they become substitutes. Para means beside the church or helping the church do certain things. But again, those parachurches are not set up as a church, but they become substitutes for the church. Okay, under that umbrella, progressivism, progressivism, where you have a serial church membership, which means you're constantly switching churches all the time, depending on whatever your particular need is. And those are the reasons why the uh, teaching on the church does not take place very often from the pulpits. Okay? Alright, in summary then, when we look at it, how important is the church? How important is understanding the doctrine of the church? 
Okay? Well, let me give you a summary. From the Catholic position, and this is going to be interesting because if we go through this teaching, you're going to see differences. You're going to see the Catholic tradition, you're going to see the evangelical tradition, so on and so forth, what these different groups believe, all right? In summary, the importance of the church for the Catholic is this. There's a man by the name of Cyprian, and here's what he says. Outside the church, there is no salvation. Okay? So for that man, when he makes that statement, that very famous statement, which is outside the church, there's no salvation, he's talking about the Catholic church. That if you're outside of the Catholic church, there is no salvation for you. Okay? If you take it in a broader term, outside the church is no salvation, then, and if you take it in the sense that it applies more to everybody that's in the church other than the Catholic church, that means the church is absolutely important if there's no salvation outside of the church. Now, as, as I said, Cyprian's coming from the viewpoint that he's a Catholic. But anyway, if you hold that viewpoint, and I hold that viewpoint, that outside the church there's absolutely no salvation, then you, you're holding the church at a very high level, correct? Okay. Now, for the most part though, evangelicals don't hold that view. They don't hold the view that outside of the church there is no salvation. Evangelicals, and in some sense we would fall into that umbrella called evangelicals, okay, as a church, in some sense, not totally. In some sense, evangelicals, as far as their opinion is how important the church is, it's pretty much optional. That's the way most evangelicals look at it, you know. It, it's pretty much optional and I'll go and it might get, benefit me just a little bit, but I really don't have to go, you know. That's the viewpoint of the evangelica. So basically it's an option, it's something they do, and they're not as committed as they should be. Okay? So that's the importance of, of the different viewpoints of the Catholic versus the evangelicals. Now, let's get in the definition of the church tonight. Uh, Matthew 16:18, when we talk about the definition of the church or the nature of the church, this is really we really begin teaching you about the doctrine of the church at this point. Okay. Now Matthew 16, look at it, please. Verse 18. Jesus said this, and I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you see that? Okay. So Jesus is talking about the, the church, how important it is. He says, um, He's going to build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what is, what is the church? What is the nature of the church? Can we define it? Yes, we can. The church is those that are redeemed. You with me? The redeemed of the Lord. Redeemed humanity of which Christ is the head. Okay, you with me? That's the true church biblically. It's only people that have really genuinely been regenerated or born again. That's, that's the church. Okay? It's redeemed humanity under the headship of Jesus Christ, those that have been regenerated. So that's the spiritual church. You understand that? Now obviously... The church, the visible church as a whole, has some people in it that have no regeneration whatsoever. 
I mean, there's absolutely no proof in their life that they have been born again. But they come to the church and they sit with the church and appear as being a part of the church. So let me, let me say this again. The church of Jesus Christ is made up only those of those that are regenerated, born again of the water and the Spirit. Okay? The professing church would include those that come to church but have no evidence of regeneration in their life whatsoever. Okay? Now, Augustine made a statement. Augustine said, we should allow all people to come to church. We should allow everybody to come to church and be a part of the church. Whether they be regenerated or not makes no difference. Let's just have everybody come. Okay? And he based that teaching on, if you go to Matthew 13. So who's the church? Redeemed humanity, right? Those who've been born again. But obviously we got a physical professing church that is that doesn't have many of them the characteristics of regeneration in their life whatsoever. There's no evidence at all that they have any experience with God. Okay? So what do we do with those people? How do we handle this? If the church of Jesus Christ is made up of only born-again believers that are under His headship, then what do we do with everybody else that wants to come and be a part of the church, but they have no evidence of salvation. How are we to handle them? Are we supposed to allow them to continue if they don't want to practice the teachings of Holy Scripture, live by the teachings of Holy Scripture, and practice the, the things that the Word of God tells us to practice? So we do, are we to accept that? I'm asking you the question. Now, I do believe that when people that are not born again come to church, it gives us an opportunity to reach them, to evangelize them. But if they're not born again, should we accept them as being part of the church? Okay. Well, there's two different viewpoints. The first one is Augustine. Let's look at the Word of the Lord tonight in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, the parables of Jesus. Concerning the kingdom of heaven, which is basically the church, okay? <clears throat> Matthew 13. Verse 24. You there? Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came, sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. Okay? So here's what here Jesus is teaching <coughs> about the outward, visible kingdom of heaven. And he's saying, in that outward, visible kingdom of heaven, uh, in the world, you have tares and you have wheat. Where are they located? In the field. Where's the field? These, what? Okay. That's, that's the key right there. 
Where is the field that Jesus is talking about that is sown with wheat and tares? Is the field the church or is the field the world? Let's look at it. Okay, so we have the sowing in the field of the wheat and the tares, correct? Alright, so we have the enemy coming sowing tares among the wheat. Verse 28, he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. This servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? <coughs> okay, the enemy, which is the devil, has come <coughs> and sowed tares in the field. Okay? Alongside the wheat. And the servants asked, asking Jesus, basically, God, do we go and uproot the tares? Do we separate the tares from the wheat? Do we get rid of them? Okay? You see how important this teaching is. Okay? The answer that Jesus has in verse 29, He says, but He said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Now, the way this is normally taught, and I remember, you know, years ago we had a sister in the church that came across an evangelist. This evangelist is a teacher and a preacher of the Word of God. He goes from church to church to church. He told the sister that is in, in this church at that time, he says, well, the Bible tells us we're not supposed to separate people, separate the wheat from the tares in the church. That we should absolutely not separate evil people from, you know, God's people in the church. That's what he told her. Okay. Well, let's keep reading. So verse 29 again, but he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Got that? But Jesus said that, right? Okay. Let both go together until the harvest. I will say to the reapers, Gather you together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, let's see what the interpretation of the parable is Jesus gives us. You with me? Okay. Praise the Lord, church. Verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away, went into the house, and His disciples came unto Him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Explain this to us, Jesus, the parable of the tares of the field. Right? Okay. You with me? Verse 37. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. Who is that? That's Jesus. Right? Okay. The field is the world. Jesus never one. Jesus did not say that the field was the church. So the evangelist was wrong. And Augustine was wrong when he said that we should not separate tares from the wheat in the church. He was wrong. Because the field is not the church. The field is the world. 
And what Jesus is talking about, He's not saying that the church should not separate evil and wicked people out from among it and discipline those people for not walking in the Scripture. Amen? He is not saying that the church should not exercise discipline. What He's teaching about is wheat and tares in the world. And He's talking about the wheat's going to grow up and the tares are going to grow up. And when God takes them out of the world, not out of the church, when He takes them out of the world is the final judgment. You see that. So the problem that we have is that so many churches today have come to the conclusion that the church of Jesus Christ is the professing church as a whole, and that everybody should be allowed to come and be a part of that church, even if they're not regenerated or have no proof or evidence of them being saved whatsoever. And we're supposed to let them sit by side by side with the people in the church and never obey the Scripture. That's Augustine's interpretation. Jesus' interpretation is, the field is the world. And Jesus is explaining to His disciples why, why the tares aren't taken out of the world. That He allows them to continue in the world until the final judgment. He never said He allowed them to continue in the church. See, that's why I'm telling you what I'm about to teach you is so important. Because I'm going to be honest with you. I love every one of you, but some of you are messed up in the head because you have accepted the philosophy that is taught. A lot of it is Augustine philosophy. It's not even in the Bible. So Augustine said the field was the church. Jesus said the field was the world. And so because Augustine said the field was the church, he says we got to let everybody stay in the church, the tares and the wheat. Mm -mm. That's not what Jesus said. He said, I'm going to allow the tares and the wheat to remain in the world. And I'm not going to take the tares out of the world until the final judgment. Do you hear what I'm saying? See, I, I don't care. You can, you, can, you can threaten me. Every one of you can leave. Whatever. You can try to hold me hostage. But I'm going to tell you something, friend. I will always be a separator. I'm going to separate by the Word of God. I'm going to separate by discipline. I'm going to separate by correction. And you get mad and you upset. I, all I can say to you is see you. Because there's absolutely nothing in the Bible that says that we should not separate the tares from the wheat that's in our midst. And I don't want to come across angry, but I, I'm just being honest with you, church. This is why this doctrine is so important because we're so ignorant. And I, and I use that as an illustration. That evangelist was a one God Jesus name evangelist. He wasn't some denominational evangelist that told that sister that was in our church, well, we're not supposed to separate, you know, uh, the tares. They're supposed to go to grow together in the church. Are you kidding me? God, Jesus is always and forever will be a separator. Amen. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. <laughs> so from Jesus' perspective then, the church, there is a professing church that's made up of tares, right? But they're, they're in the world. 
And God's going to let them stay in the world until the final judgment. But as a church, the true church of Jesus Christ is only made up of people who have been regenerated, and listen to me carefully, and are under His authority. If you're not under the authority of Jesus Christ today, you're not in His church. Alright? You can come all day, you can come all your life to church, but that does not make you a part of the church of Jesus Christ. It is an invisible body of Christ that's been regenerated by His Spirit. Amen. And people that are have the proof. They've got the evidence. You can see it in their life. Say amen. But we'll be patient with people. You know, because we're given an opportunity if they haven't heard. We'll, get, we'll be patient with them to repent. They don't repent. See ya. Okay? Because the, the church of Jesus Christ is not made up of wheat and tares. The, the true church of Jesus Christ is only made up of wheat. And that golden grain will bow its head when it's ripe. And, and it's a type of submission to the headship of Jesus Christ. But it's the tear. The tear looks like wheat when it first starts growing. But it grows straight and tall and it's black in color and it does not bow its head in submission. Okay, so you have people that are in the church that are like the wheat. When they mature, the golden grain lays over, bows its head in submission to Jesus Christ, to His Lordship and to His authority. Amen. Amen. And those people are going to be taken into His barns. That's the true church. The tares that are in the world though, that black-headed, hard-headed, they're hard-headed. And they won't bow. They're going to be judged in the final judgment. So do you see that today? Now, if I were to ask you, based on what I was hearing come from you, when I say... When I ask the question, where, what is the field? So many of you are saying the church, the church, the church. Jesus didn't say it was the church. He said the field is the world. So we have to be careful about how we interpret the Word of the Lord. Okay? So once again, what is the nature of the church? What's the definition of the church? It is People who have been regenerated, born again, believers, listen to me, who are under the headship of Jesus Christ. If you're not under His headship, you can talk about all day long how much I'm saved. God's going to spit you out of His mouth. He's going to look at you on judgment and say, depart from me, you that work rebellion, because I don't even know you. Amen? And what I'm saying, I say to all, I don't care if you're, you know, a relative or a friend or whatever. That's the Bible. So is this helping anybody? Okay. So next time, sometimes some liberal church person comes up and tells you, well, you know, we're not supposed to separate the wheat from the tares in the church. Well, where'd you get that? Well, Jesus said it. No, Jesus never said that. Amen? He just said He's going to leave the tares in the world until the final judgment. He didn't talk about leaving the tares in the church. Okay, say praise the Lord. So that's the definition. One definition of the church. Ephesians 1, 22-23. The church is the body of Christ. <clears throat> right? How many understand the body of Christ? He's the head. We're the body. 
We're the body of Christ. That means that He gives us spiritual life. Our life comes from Him. Amen? A body, for a body to be a body. I mean, it could be a dead body. But if it's the body of Christ, it's not a dead body because it's receiving its spiritual life from its head, Jesus Christ. Okay, so look at your neighbor and say, if you're in the church, you're in the body of Christ. Okay? Sustained by the spiritual life He gives us. Now, if you go back to Matthew 16, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you another question. Just to inspire learning, okay? Is the church the kingdom? Is the church the kingdom? Is the church the kingdom? Well, you do understand that before the church, before there was a church as we know it today in the New Testament, before was the church, the body of Jesus Christ, hallelujah, there was the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God existed before the church existed. The church comes out of the kingdom, not the kingdom. You with me? Let me say it again. The church comes out of the kingdom. The kingdom is simply the rule of the king. His dominion. Does that make sense? Okay. So, but, if you look at what Jesus said in Matthew 16, in verse 19, He said, I will give unto thee the keys of the what? Kingdom of heaven. So He tells us here, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto me, unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, right? And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I will build my church. Future tense. So he lets you know right there that the, the church is a future, a future thing. Now, obviously we understand the assembly in the Old Testament. Israel is called a church, or a congregation, or assembly of people that gathered and worshiped God. But the church as we know it today, the New Testament church as we know it today, Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Future. Okay? So then, the kingdom of God was already in existence. But Jesus said, I will build my church. He doesn't say, I will build my kingdom. He says, I will build my church. So the kingdom pre-existed the church. Are y'all with me here today? But notice what he says about that church. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. So what we have now is a kingdom that, that existed before the church ever existed. Jesus is showing you that the church is going to be the thing right now that's going to manifest the kingdom. Before there was the church, the kingdom of God was manifest in different ways. It's, it's the everlasting kingdom. Right? Say everlasting kingdom. So it, it's in, it's in existence longer than the church. The kingdom of God was manifest in different ways throughout the Old Testament. But when you get to the church age, where we are now, called the church age, now God is manifesting His kingdom through the church. But you can't, you can't mix the two up. 
is what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? So the church comes out of the kingdom and manifests the kingdom, but the kingdom pre-existed the church. Okay. All right. Y'all got it. I know you do. Now, say church. The word church. What language are you speaking in tonight? English. Okay. Some of y'all speak to me in Spanish. Say church in Spanish. Ah, uh, what was that? In Iglesia. Ecclesia? With a K, right? No, how? Iglesia? What does that mean in English? Church? Okay. Well, that sure doesn't sound like the word church to me. Does anybody else, can anybody else speak any other language beside uh, English and Spanish? German? How many, how about Scottish? We'll get to the Greek in a minute. Okay. Everybody's saying English. Church. church. Say church. church. Okay. Good. You did real well. The English word church, when you say church in English, is like the Scotch Kirk and the German Kirch. Scotch Kirk, K-I-R-K, and German Kirch, K-I-R-C-H-E. Let me say it again. The English word church is like the Scottish Kirk and the German Kirch. It is those, listen to me carefully. The word church, or the English word church, Kirk, Kirch, alright, is derived from a Greek word. Now listen carefully. It is kyriakos, kyriakos, and it means belonging to the Lord. Okay? That word in the Greek is used, like for example in Revelation uh, chapter 1 and verse 10, it talks about the Lord's day. That word is used there. It means it belongs to the Lord. Correct? Praise the Lord. That's the English. Stay with me, English. Don't, don't think about the Bible right now. Don't think about the Bible right now. I'm talking about the English language. Okay? It, it's, it derives from the Greek word that is used in the Bible. It means it belongs to the Lord. You with me? Now, when we get to the New Testament... The New Testament word uh, is translated from the Greek word ecclesias or ecclesia. Did you get that? Ecclesia. You know that, right? Everybody know that? Okay. Now, do you know where the English word church comes from? It means belonging to the Lord. Okay? Praise the Lord. When you go through the New Testament, you're going to see this word church, 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 church. The original language is the Greek behind that English word church. And it's ecclesia. The Greek word ecclesia. Now, are you with me? What does ecclesia mean? Or ecclesia? That's translated church in the English from the Greek. Yes, hallelujah, you got one right. It means to call out. Or a congregation. Now what's interesting 
if, if we look at the word ecclesia or ecclesia, it means called out, but congregation means together. So ecclesia or ecclesia really in its broadest definition means a called out people, a, a people who are set apart, who are congregated, are gathered to worship Him. Okay? Now specifically, ecclesia or ecclesia means an assembly of people who have gathered for a specific purpose. Okay? So, you're the church tonight means you're called out. You're called out from the world. Alright? So you're called out. Great! But what do you do after you're called out? As the church, you are to gather together. You are to assemble together. Having been called out, now we're gathering together to do what? To worship the Lord. Okay? And as we teach you the doctrine of the church, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you all some questions. Is it biblical for us to be organized? Is it biblical for us to have a building? Is it biblical for us to have leaders and headship in the church? Or should we all just be kind of be our own pastor, be our own leader, do whatever we want to do with no organization? There's a lot of people that teach that. We're going to find out from the Bible. What does the Bible say about the church? Does it have a government? Does it have an order? Amen. Are y'all here with me today? Does, does it organize? And I'm not talking about organization. I'm talking about how the church functions. Okay? Because you would not believe in my early days in pastoring, people would come across and tell me, Pastor, you're not supposed to have this building. You know, we're all supposed to just meet in our houses and spread out all over Destin, Midland, Texas, you know, and, and we're not supposed to, you're not supposed to have a building like this where people come in here and I go, really? I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. We just kept having it. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Praise the Lord, church. It's important. So anyway, ecclesia means, ecclesia or ecclesia means to call out for the purpose of gathering together to worship the Lord. Right? You got somebody over here and they want to do their own little home church. And they, they want to say, we are the church of the living God so we don't have to go to church. Then how, how do you fulfill the definition of the very word in the Greek which means to be called out in order to congregate or to gather together in order to worship Him. Right? Okay. So again, it means to call out, to gather together for a purpose. It is not a denomination. Let me say it again. The church is not a denomination. You can be a denomination and be lost. Let me say it again. You can be in a denomination and be lost. You can be out of a denomination and be saved. You can be out of a denomination and be lost. Just because you're in a denomination doesn't mean you are saved. There's a lot of people 
who say, I, I, you know, I'm a this. Especially you soul winners that go knock on doors and you come across people and they say, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Church of Christ or I'm a Pentecostal or, oh, I wasn't supposed to say that, but anyway. Or I'm an Anabaptist or Methodist or Plymouth Brethren. You know, Shaker, Quaker. I mean, I, you never know. You may come across all kinds of people, right? <clears throat> you with me? Don't mean to leave anybody out. Methodist, Presbyterian, I don't mean to leave any of you out. But you see, what they're saying is, I'm a, I'm a particular denomination. But remember, the church is not a denomination. So if you say I'm a part of a particular denomination, you can die and go to hell because you're not a part of the church. But you can, you can be a person who's not a part of a denomination and be saved because you're in the church. So the church then is not a denomination. In fact, the word denomination has a negative connotation to it. It means to divide and number the people. Denomination. Okay? Say praise the Lord. So people get so hung up on what denomination they're a part of. What denomination are you? I'm a Baptist. Church of Christ. Really? Wow. Presbyterian. Yeah, Catholic. Good. But are you in His church? Are you in the church of Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about the placard that you hang out front in front of your door. I'm not talking about the sign that you hang outside your door. The signs that we place outside of our door are merely the marking points of where we stopped. That is to say, I'm a Baptist. You stopped at baptism. What about the infilling of the Holy Ghost speaking with other tongues? You know what I'm saying? So, so when we talk about the church then, we're not talking about a denomination. It's the called out people who, again, are regenerated under the headship of Jesus Christ, called out, amen, from the world and to, in order to congregate together and worship Him. Alright, the church is not a building. Okay, now how many of you caught yourself saying, I'm going to church tonight. We all do that, don't we? I'm going to church tonight. Well, how can you go to church if you are the church? You know what I'm saying? But in your mind, you're, you think the church is a building. You know what made this building holy? You know what made it holy? When you walked in. Let me just say this to you. You, you might not like this, but, but you can take the honky tonk down the street, run all the honky tonkers out, all the partiers out of that place, walk in there and have a church service and feel God. You say, well, I would never do that. I'd never have church in a honky tonk. Never would do that. Have church. Well, you are the church. And you can go into that place and you can worship God and feel the presence of God because that church is not a building. And you make that place holy even though it's been defiled. It's defiled when the other people show up. Amen? Why? Because the church is not a building. It is a 
the body of Jesus Christ, it is made up of, uh, of regenerated people who are under the headship of Jesus Christ. You understand that? Who have been called out to congregate in order to worship Him, to gather to worship Him. That's what... Amen. Say praise the Lord. Now what's interesting, the word church, ecclesia in the Greek, is translated assembly. Acts 19, 32 and 41. And it was a, it was a secular assembly. But the Greek word was ecclesia, ecclesia. So again, the definition of the word means what? The called out people, a gathering of people for what? A specific purpose. Let me give you the, the chapter and verse again. Okay, It's called an assembly in Acts 19, 32 and verse 41. And what is it? It's, it's not a church like this, but it is an ecclesia in the sense that it is a group of people who have gathered together for a specific purpose and that is political reasons or to make a business transaction. Amen? You go to work and they call for a business meeting. And people are gathered there in that room. They're in an ecclesia. Because they have gathered there for a specific purpose. They've congregated for a specific purpose. But they're not the church. Okay? So the word has a secular meaning as well. Now, if you look at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, <coughs> it talks about the church of Corinth. When you talk about the church, there's the local church. So Paul talks about the churches of God, which, what? Look at it. Look at the verse. How many churches are there? One. One body of Christ. One church, right? Do you know what a church is now? What the church is. Okay. I'm, I'm teaching the nature and the definition of the church. One, how many churches are there? Oh, okay. Alright, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. You there? Unto the church of God which is at Corinth. Interesting. So now, God, Paul, is talking about a church in a particular location. Okay? Do you get that? So the, the nature of the church is that it is with me. There's only one church. But there are many churches. Local assemblies. Local gathering places. Are you with me? That make up that one church. So it's local. 1 Corinthians 1-2 and then Acts 9-31. Let's go there. How many churches are there? Are you sure? Oh, okay. You're sure? Absolutely sure. Absolutely. Okay. Acts 9.31 Then had the churches... I thought you said there's only one. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. So now we have the term churches plural. Right? And it speaks about a region of churches. 
Correct? Judea, Galilee, Samaria. Those local churches in those different areas. So we have churches that are you know, specifically mentioned in the Word of God in that particular locality. Corinth. The church of God that's in Corinth. And then we have churches, plural, that are mentioned in a region. But all, you know, the one church that's in Corinth and the churches in that particular region are still a part of one church. There's only one church. Okay, so praise the Lord. So we have collective congregations which make up that one church. Does everybody understand that? Now, everybody clear about what the church is? There's much more we could say about what the church is, but I just want you to get that much down. All right. Now, what is the characteristics of a true church? Biblically. How do you know if you're in a true church? Acts chapter 2. Verse 41 and 42. Are you there? You got to be pretty fast. What is the marks? I'm going to teach you on the marks of a true church. We've defined for you the church. We've explained to you why the teaching on the church is not taught. We've explained to you the definition, okay, of a church, the nature of a church. Now we're going to teach you about the characteristics of the church or the marks of a church. In the early church, in that New Testament church, what was it like? What was it like? What were, what were the characteristics? What were the marks that were in that church? Acts 2.41, look at it. Then they that gladly received His Word. Wow. What marks? What, one of the marks of the church, one characteristic of the church is that the Word of God is preached there. Say the preaching of the Word of God. Number two, baptism. Another mark, another, another characteristic of the true church of Jesus Christ is baptism. You get it? The Bible says in the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 soul, souls. So you have evangelism. Matthew 28 talks, Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Right? Well, what is that? What is that? If you teach them, you're discipling them. Okay, so we know that's one characteristic of the church is that we're discipling people. But evangelism, okay, so I'm going to go back. Preaching of the Word, baptism, evangelism. Okay? Then we continue. And the Bible says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. All right? So what are the characteristics or the marks of the church so far? The preaching of the Word, baptism, evangelism. What else? The apostles' doctrine. Okay, let's keep going. And fellowship. Say fellowship. Koinonia in the Greek. Doesn't mean get together and just, you know, talk. Have, you know. Amen? Fellowship. Koinonia means more, more than that. It means to participate. It, 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 so on and so forth. There's participation in the early church. Koinonia, fellowship. Koinonia means a partnership. Koinonia means participation. It's a, it's a very large word, okay? So it means more than just getting together and talking to each other. 
there was a partnership in that early church. There was a participation in that early church. When that church got together, everybody got together to pray. Let me say it to you again. When that church got together, when a prayer meeting was called, everybody in the church participated. That's what koinonia means. They participated. They were in a partnership. So if there was a church service, everybody came to that church service. If it was a prayer meeting, everybody came to that prayer meeting. It wasn't just a few people showing up here and there. There was participation and there was a partnership. That's fellowship or koinonia. And then it says breaking of bread. Okay? So they shared meals together. This could also imply the Lord's Supper. Okay, we take the Lord's Supper here, right? So the breaking of bread. There's more than one way to break bread. Break bread by preaching the Word of God. Break bread by having meals together. Break bread by taking the Lord's Supper. So that was a characteristic of the early church. Okay? And by the way, we're going we're gonna to break down these things that they practice and teach you on them. Alright. And then it says, and in what? Prayers. So this is what you have in that early church, right there in Acts chapter 2, 41 and 42. Basic characteristics of the church. It's beautiful, isn't it? So, if, if I want to know if I'm in the church of the living God, the first thing I have to see is, okay, is the nature or the characteristics or the marks of that early church in my church? Is the Word preached? Do they baptize people? Amen. Is there evangelism in the church? Do they teach steadfastly the apostles' doctrine or continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? Is there fellowship, participation, and uh, partnership in, in, in breaking in bread, eat meals together, take the Lord's Supper, and in prayers? And prayers include worship. Okay? And obviously, this is not... Um, Exhaustive. Because you go to the book of Corinthians and you see the gifts of the Spirit are in operation in the church. The nine gifts of the Spirit, right? And that's not even exhaustive. Roman talks about other gifts that are uh, other than the nine that are in the church. And then Philippians talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers that are in the church. Okay? Say Amen. But that's the basic characteristics of that early church. And then verse 43, And fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. You see that? Alright, say praise the Lord. Now, the one other thing you have to add to this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Discipline. Say discipline. <clears throat> the characteristics or the nature of the church, one of them is discipline. And that is this. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you will see that a particular individual was removed from their assembly because they refuse, do you understand? To obey the Scripture and live by the Scripture. So the way the early church practiced discipline was by removing those people from the church. Okay? I mean, I'm just teaching the Bible. I'm not getting ready to remove anybody. At least not tonight. 
No, you know, I'm not going to move anybody that's a saint of God that's living by the Word of the Lord. But I'm just telling you, these are the characteristics of the nature of the early church. Again, I'm going to go through them real fast. Preaching, baptism, apostles' teaching, meals, Lord's Supper, prayer, evangelism, discipleship, Matthew 28, fellowship, that means participation and partnership, worship, which is prayer. We got that back up there. And then 1 Corinthians 5, discipline. That is the characteristics of the early church. Basic. Okay. Now, when we go through history, the history of the church, you with me here? Okay. The nature and characteristics of the church as seen in history, and again, listen to me carefully, not always lining up with the Bible and not always having the Bible to back up its characteristic. But there are particular characteristics of the church through history. Okay, and I'm going to share those with you. Now, and you need to understand where I'm coming from. I'm going to do in a, compa a comparison as we talk about these characteristics between the Catholic viewpoint and evangelicals or so-called Protestant viewpoint. Okay, you with me? All right, and then I'm going to go from there and um, talk to you further about the Reformers of the time of the Reformation. Okay, through history. <coughs> now, as you go through history, and this, I think some of this is backed up by the Bible, some of it's not. That's important for you to understand. There was one church. Say one church. That's biblical. There's one church, there's one body of Christ, correct? It may have a local location, but there's one body or one church made up of many churches, local churches or regions. Okay, you with me at this point? But one church was a characteristic as you go through history, the history of the church. Now, that view is looked at differently. For the evangelical, one church worldwide means spiritual oneness. Let me say it again. Spiritualness, not organizational oneness. Amen. You with me here? How many of y'all would believe or agree that the church is made up of one church, one body? Amen? How? Not by, organiz not by an organization, but by spiritual union. How? A common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A common love for Him. Correct? Um, contending for the faith which is once and for all delivered to the saints. Do you understand? So there is a people in the world today, all over the world, that makes up that one church. We believe that. We believe in one church. And we're held together by a common faith. Praise the Lord. A common love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it has nothing to do with an organization. Right? Oneness in Catholicism or the Catholic viewpoint is organizational. And when they talk about one church throughout the world, they're talking about organization or institution. There is one Catholic church. Okay, so do you get it? From our viewpoint... There is one church and it's a spiritual union or spiritual unity not based on organization. You and I have brothers and sisters 
that are in or maybe an organization that we're not in. But our, our oneness or our understanding of each other as brothers and sisters in one body of Christ then is not based on organization. It's based on a common faith. Right? But again, now, now, ooh, let me back up just a minute. See, there's some people who are in the church of Jesus Christ, that one church, that even think that you have to be in their organization in order to be saved. And they're not even Catholic. So, so some organizations take on that viewpoint that the Catholic Church has, and that is oneness is organizational. Pray to God there's nobody in this house that's got a messed up brain. Your oneness has nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with an organization that you're a part of. And if, if you believe that, then you have a Catholic mentality, although you're not Catholic. Okay. So again, through history, the church, the mark of the church characteristic is that there's one, but there's just different viewpoints as to what that one means. One is organizational. One is spiritual. Number two, holiness. Say holiness. The evangelical viewpoint about holiness as a characteristic in the church is more individual. You with me? Now what that means is that it has to do with the spiritual, personal living. A holy living. Church is maintaining. Are y'all with me? A spiritual focus. How? Key word. Discipline. So the evangelical says, all right, characteristic of the church is holiness. Each individual living holy before the Lord. Are y'all with me here? Okay. Praise God. And in order to maintain that living, spiritual living, there must be discipline in the church as a whole so that the church continues to live individually holy. Catholicism, the Catholic viewpoint, looks at it totally different. They say the institution or the organization that is called the church is holy. And that the sinner approaches the holy. You understand? So, the focus is not the individual being holy. The focus is upon the church being holy. Uh-oh. Woo, glory to God. And, and, and so then, therefore, when we talk about a characteristic called discipline, there's absolutely very little discipline that takes place in the Catholic Church as far as formal discipline or structural discipline because the church is holy. So it really doesn't matter how the individual lives as they come to the holy. Okay? Evangelical is totally different. Evangelism says the evangelical, which we'd be a part of that in a, you know, in a sense, teaches that each one of us must live holy, set apart unto God. And anybody that does not do that must be disciplined. Because it must be maintained. And you're looking at a preacher that'll do it. 
I'm just going to tell everyone. I'm going to tell you the guests. I'll tell the guests. Because you, you, I don't have to tell the parishioners. I don't have to tell the holy parishioners here today. If you're a guest, you're looking at a man that will deal with you. Okay? Because I will maintain discipline in the church. And I will correct. Because that's the only way that you can maintain holiness in a, in a church is if you have what? Discipline. And that is an evangelical way throughout history. It's not just us here in Bible Center Fellowship. It's the history of the evangelical movement that believe that the characteristics of that church must be holiness individually and must be maintained by discipline. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. You can see why I'm excited about this word. So you walk out of here, you can act, you know, if I don't teach you this, you, you know, you can act dumb. I don't know. Once I get through teaching you, no more acting dumb. Now you know. Why, is it, why, why does that church discipline people? I like going to the Catholic church because they don't discipline anybody. That is because they look at their institution or their organization as being holy. So they don't, very, very little discipline takes place. Amen in that church. Why discipline the sin in the church if the church is holy? Doesn't matter what they do. Okay. Man, some of you are saying, that man, that man scares me. I pray to God I do. I mean, you preach, man, you come across all kinds of people. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So anyway, I already talked to you about Roman Catholicism, right? The church itself is holy even if the members are not. The members sinful as they approach a holy church. The church, the institution, has holiness. In, an, in, an, in the evangelical movement, it's the individual that is holy. Okay. Third characteristics as you go through history. The church universal. Say the church universal. From evangelical mindset means that we believe that the church of the living God, amen, can exist in any culture. It's not an American thing. It's not a Hispanic thing, even though you want to make it that. It's not a Chinese thing. Hallelujah. It's not a Filipino thing. It's not an Anglo thing. It has nothing to do with your culture. But we believe as an evangelical, amen, we're Pentecostal, but we're evangelical, that we believe in a universal church. That means that the church of the living God can exist in any culture. Amen? Any culture. Hallelujah. <clears throat> you look at the book of Acts, the apostles went, man, preaching all over the world. They didn't know more of the Roman Empire. Preaching churches established all over the place. Amen? Any culture. We have that viewpoint, right? You don't believe that America can, is the only place that can have a church. No, you don't. I don't either. I believe that any place and every place can have a church. That's a universal. Okay. Now, the Catholic church looks at it different. Well, of course they do. I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to teach you on ecclesiology and I'm supposed to be... Okay, not, not giving my opinions. But anyway... The Catholic Church has a totally different viewpoint about the church universal. Amen? Their view is 
that there is a church in every location. Let me say it again. Now obviously, evangelicals know that a church can exist in any culture, but does that mean we believe that there is an evangelical church in every location? No. That's why we're busy trying to spread the gospel to the world because we know that the church of the living God is not in every location. But in a Catholic mindset, universal church means we are going to set up a Catholic church in every location. Are y'all with me? Did you hear what I say? How many of you have, have just traveled from city to city? And, and I cannot remember, and, and listen, I'm just being honest with you, I cannot remember one little town that I have ever gone to that didn't have a Catholic church in it. Because they have that, that viewpoint about a universal church, the, the, the Catholic church, one Catholic church in every location. Wow. Wouldn't that be awesome if we had that mentality? Not only that the church can exist in any culture, but that, that there should be a, a oneness, Jesus' name, apostolic church in every location. That means after you sit here for two or three years and I get, you know, I preach to you, then you go start a church in some place that don't have a church. And you get to pastor and deal with people and discipline their kids and watch them, the parents get mad at you. You get to handle all of that mess. Okay? But you know, but I'm just saying, praise the Lord. We believe the church can exist in any culture, but we're really not as busy as we should be trying to establish one in every location. But the Catholic Church is like that. When I first started preaching the Word of the Lord, you know, feeling the call to preach, me and my wife, this is before Victoria and Jeremiah were ever born, we went to Pecos and we preached in Pecos. And, you know, I've told you the story. We walked in that little building and that wasn't the church. It was just a building. And there was just a few little people. And remember, some old, remember that old, older couple was there, just faithful as they could possibly be, you know. Just a handful of people in that church in Pecos. Air conditioner wasn't working. It was in the summertime. Man, you go up there, you, I tell you what, you talk about sweat. It was hot in that little building. That little faithful flock, though, that little congregation, man, faithful to the Lord. It didn't matter if the air conditioner was on. They were in the house, you know. Are y'all with me? But I remember going into Pecos, and I'm telling you, I kid you not, it seemed like there was a Catholic church on every corner. I'm being honest with you. Because that's their viewpoint of the universal church, a church in every location. And here we are. You know, this little flock, no air conditioner in the church. You know, somebody had come and knocked the windows out of the church and everything else. This little faithful, faithful, small group of people there. And we went on a Saturday and we did a little evangelism because the pastor was out of town, you know. And so, praise the Lord. And um, so we went and knocked doors a little bit, you know, praise God. And hallelujah. People drove up in the parking lot on Sunday. Remember that, Christina? Some people, we had knocked doors that day and they had visitors. And I remember when the car drove up and people walked out, walked through the back door, the people at that church looked around and they were so excited because they had a visitor. Remember that? You know, you talk about faithful, no air conditioner, busted out windows, pastors out of town. <clears throat> but still sitting there burning up, worshiping God. 
you know? But I, am I correct, Christine? Didn't we say a Catholic church is about on every corner? That's the viewpoint. Praise the Lord. Amen. You know, don't, don't just, don't sit in the church until you get fed up with me. You know, just get disgusted with me. Before you get to that point, make sure everything's on good terms and then go start a church somewhere. Hallelujah. Don't, don't wait till everything blows up and then, well, I'm going to do something now. Well, we're supposed to be evangelizing the world because we believe that Jesus Christ wants to save every little town. It doesn't matter how, how big, how few, whatever. And some of you don't care. Now, I'm starting to feel a little unction on me to preach. If you don't care about where the souls of men and women are going... I personally doubt if you're going to heaven. Because if you really know Jesus Christ, if God is in your heart, He came and died to make a universal church. That means to establish a church in every culture. And if you and I don't care about that, are we even saved? Because if you're really saved, you care about that person sitting next to you that's going to die and go to hell. You care about that person. You care about your family. You care about every person you see. You wonder in your mind, are they going to heaven or hell? If you don't, there's something wrong with you. Throughout history, that was a characteristics, a marking point of the church, the universal church, although different viewpoints. Okay? The next one was an apostolic mark or the mark of apostolicity. Brother Daniel, I just couldn't wait to say that word. I love that word, apostolicity. Everybody say with me, apostolicity. You didn't obey me, I want you in the altar praying right now. I just got that kind of spirit on me today. Hallelujah. I just, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's kind of like me and Brother Heath were kind of laughing the other day. You know, we get real tough in public around our wives. You know, and then, and then we get home and say, yes, ma'am. <laughs> so I'm acting real tough. I got the pulpit, you know, it's protecting me here. Hallelujah. And then I step out from behind the pulpit and say, yeah, how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know? But I love that word. I love apostolicity. Man, that's a powerful word right there. They, they, they did. They had the tradition of apostolicity. Hallelujah. Look at that. Woo! Glory to God. Makes me want to speak in tongues, man. That's a powerful word. Brother Daniel Lee, you know what? If you don't even know what to preach, you don't even know what you're preaching. You get up and preach some things and don't even know what you're telling them. Just use that word apostolicity and everybody goes, ooh. Powerful. Remember we heard that man preach the third dimension of apostolicity? Whew, Lord of God. I mean, when he gave the title, I was about slain in the Spirit. But damn, it's going to be good. Third dimension of apostolicity. 
And he preached, and I still don't know what the third dimension of apostolicity was. But it was a powerful message. Power, no, powerful title. Powerful title. I'd probably have to get that tape and listen to it over and over and over again to find out what he meant by third dimension of apostolicity. But they had the apostolic mark. Evangelicals, the focus is on apostolic teaching. A true church is apostolic. Are y'all with me here today? A true church is apostolic. We are committed to the faith. Like Jude says, content for the faith which was once and, all, once and for all delivered to the saints. We're committed to the faith. Amen? That is the apostolic tradition handed down through the centuries and embodied in the Scriptures. Y'all believe that? Okay, the doctrine of the apostles. Now, the Catholic Church still holds on to that viewpoint of apostolicity in a sense or a, 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 a apostle, but it's different. It's a different viewpoint. They believe in apostolic succession. That means is that they, they believe that their leadership, present day leadership, can trace their, their connections all the way back to the early apostles. That they are descendants of the early apostles. It's called apostolic succession. Are y'all with me? To the Lord. You with me? But obviously, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to throw it in because I'm trying to teach you. Well, if that be the case, then Peter had a wife because he had a mother-in-law. And, you know, according to the Catholic viewpoint on apostolic succession, if you're a successor of Apostle Peter and you tell, you know, your bishops, your leaders, you can't get married, is it true apostolic succession? Okay, so anyway, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm not supposed to do that. But that's the difference in our viewpoint. Our viewpoint is that we hold on to the doctrine of the apostles and we, listen to me, and we do believe that in order to be a true church, it must be an apostolic church that holds on to the teaching of the apostles. Amen? And it's not just a Pentecostal that says that. If you study history... That's what evangelicals believe. They may have drifted away from that. They may not hold on to that anymore. But through history, that was one of the characteristics or nature of the church. They believed in the doctrine of the apostles. Okay? The difference being in the Catholic church is that it's succession. All right. Praise the Lord. Everybody here? So where are we? What are the historical marks? One church, holiness, universal, and apostolicity. You don't know how much I love that word. Jerry, when you preach, just use that word all the time, apostolicity. That's all you got to do. Just say apostolicity. That's all you got to say to me and I'll be running. I will. I'll be shouting, running. I love that. There's something powerful about that word. 
Now, as we move further into history, into the time of the Reformation, there were some things that were added to um, the definition of the church, of the characteristics or nature of the church. And, and one of the particular things, characteristics of a church, Reformation, you understand Reformation? When the, the um, Protestants, when, when people separate, you know, divided from the Catholic Church. You with me? Reformation or the Reformers. Okay, so we have people coming out from the Catholic Church starting different denominations called Protestantism. That's what I'm talking about. That time called the Reformation. Okay, during that time, the Reformation, one chief major characteristic of the church was this right here. Okay? And that's heavy. I thought somebody had something standing on it. But right here, you see this pulpit? Where is it? Where, where is it? Trick question. Where is the pulpit? Is it in the back of the building? Okay, is it off to the side? Why isn't it off to the side? What would be wrong if I moved it over here and I preached to you like this? Other than being closer to them than I am you. What would be the problem? You might think I like them better than you. No. I mean, I'm being honest. I'm kind of joking with you. But why don't we put the puppet over here? Or why don't we put it over there? Or why don't we put it beside this altar here? Why don't we put it at the back of the church? Because in the time of the Reformation, the preaching of the Word of the Lord was a major characteristics of the church, a major mark of the church. So when you see churches today, for the most part, the Protestant churches, call them Protestant or Pentecostal churches, you go into them, where's the pulpit? It's in the center. And what that tells you when you're going to church is that the Word of God, the preached Word of God, is the center of that church. <laughs> that was, especially in the time of the Reformation, the marking point, a marker of the church, was the centrality of the preached Word of God so that the pulpit itself physically tells you how important the Word of God is. It's in the center of the church. Okay, so the mark of preaching. And then... <clears throat> In Catholic, the Catholic viewpoint, we'll, we'll define for you later sacraments. What is a sacrament? What does the word sacrament mean? We'll define all that for you later on. But the sacraments, for example, they call the Lord's Supper the sacrament. Um, in the time of the Reformation, you know, the Catholic Church, even today, is more of an automatic type of thing. The time of the Reformation, the Reformers reduce the number of sacraments. Okay? And started focusing on the spiritual aspect of those, the Lord's Supper, etc. And others, the spiritual aspect of it, instead of just an automatic thing that you know would be found in the Catholic Church. So a reduction of the number of them and more emphasis on the spiritual aspects of them. That's the Reformers. Okay? Praise the Lord. Almost done. Appreciate your time. <clears throat> now, discipline. 
especially in the time of the Reformers, discipline in the church was a major characteristic in the time of the Reformation. Okay? Major mark of that church. In the sense that uh, the Reformers placed heavy importance on practical discipline. That is, listen to me, excluding members who fail to follow the teaching and practices laid out in the Scriptures. When I say discipline, I'm just not just talking about, hey, you know, where a person gets corrected for doing something wrong. When I'm talking about discipline, I'm talking about the actual, actual removing of a person from the assembly who failed to follow the teachings and practices laid out in what? The Scriptures. Not, not the teaching of a man or the doctrine of a man, but the teaching of the Scriptures. Okay? Now, why would they do that? Why would they, would they practice discipline as a, and, and it become one of the marking points of the church? To ensure holiness. That holiness, the church would continue to be holy. Praise the Lord. Now, here's the thing. The Bible said all is sin and comes short of the glory of God. If we sin, if we say we have no sin, you know, we make God to be a liar. The truth is not in us. Okay, so here's the point. I'm not talking about when you're trying to live for the Lord, and live for the Lord, and you stumble and you fall, you know. Um, there wouldn't be anybody in this church building right now. Listen to what I said. Listen to what I said. This is what they practiced. It wasn't if a person sinned and repented that they were removed. It, were, it was people that they were excluded, excluded members who failed to follow the teachings and practices laid out in the Scriptures. Okay? Ensuring holiness and the purity of the church. That was the evangelical viewpoint in history. I love it. See, I want to be right. Amen? I don't want to do this just the way I think it ought to be done. And honestly, church, I don't want you to do this the way you think it ought to be done. I want to make sure that we have you know, we've defined the church that we've got the nature and the marks of distinction of a church in the midst of us. Now, when it comes to discipline, the Catholic Church, um, there isn't much discipline in the Catholic Church in a formal way or a structural way. And you know that. Amen? Now, there's good and bad all kinds of people. Good and bad Baptists, good and bad Catholics, good and bad Pentecostals. You're going to find good and bad in everything. Okay? But, at least in the, in the, the Reformed churches, those that have come out of the Catholic way, at least they believed in discipline to try to maintain holiness and purity in the church. I think maybe it's because that, you know, the Catholic viewpoint is that our institution is holy. So it really doesn't matter what the people are like. You know? That's probably where that comes from, obviously. But again, in closing, um, in the Catholic thinking, there isn't much discipline in a formal way. Okay? So you, you could probably, you know, do all kinds of sinful things. And as, as, as long as you come to church and do what you do, they won't say much to you. 
Okay? And the sad part about it is a lot of the so-called Reformed churches, churches that, are, that came out of Catholicism, the time of the Reformation, now they begin to move away from the discipline that's in the church because they don't really care about maintaining spiritual purity or holiness in the church, which is really sad because the church, the early church, and I gave you those at the beginning from the Bible. That was one of the things they practiced. Okay? So these are historical ways, historical ways and reflective ways uh, to help us understand the church. And I hope this has been a blessing to you. <clears throat> okay? <clears throat> but I always like to end with the Scripture as far as the characteristics, uh, marks and characteristics of the church in the Bible. So that's what I'm going to do. Acts 2, 41-42. Again, let's go there. Now, obviously, you know, you have to get in the church before you can have the mark of the church. And that's given to us in Acts 2, verse 38, how you get in the church. So Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sins you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's how you get in the church. Then once you get in the church, these are the, is the nature and characteristics of the church. Then they gladly received His Word. The preached Word. Baptism. Alright? Evangelism. Same day they were added in them about 3,000 souls. 42. They continue steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine. Apostolicity. And fellowship. Koinonia. That means participation and partnership. And in breaking of bread, eating meals together, the Lord's Supper being a part of that, and in prayers, which can also includes worship. Okay? Amen. First Corinthians chapter 5, discipline is in the early church. Everybody okay? Hallelujah. God is good. So Lord willing, next Wednesday, we will teach you on the government of the church. Hallelujah. How the church is to be governed. Let's please stand. Lord Jesus, we thank You tonight for Your goodness, mercy, and grace. God, help us, Lord. Help me as a pastor. Help this congregation, Your body, Your people that are here present. Let us learn, Father, about the church. That we may grow in understanding. That we may glorify You in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord. Thank you for being here tonight.